Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Bianca, what do feminists and fascists have in common? Hmm. I think that they both think Picasso is overrated. Is that correct? Hmm. I feel as though you can be more right. (laughs) This joke is straight out of Anna Blake's TikTok, an independent arts writer and arts content creator, and today's special guest on APT. Anna is joining us to discuss her viral TikTok about Pablo Picasso and why we need to stop putting this artist on a pedestal and dismantle the idea of the genius artist. That's right. Ready or not, let's art pop talk. Hey G, what's up? You know, nothing much. I'm really just excited and ready to talk about this highly anticipated episode for us. We have been slowly introducing concepts about the relations between cancel culture, and now we are really ready to go into depth about why we have such a strong opinion about a particular artist that we bring (laughs) up quite a bit on the pod, which is Pablo Picasso, and bring in a specialist to really help guide this conversation today. Yeah, I'm so excited for you guys to hear the interview on today's episode. Um, The reason that we finally kind of decided to tackle, if you will, this topic is that we've been getting quite a few questions about why we keep hating on Picasso and why we joke about him being the worst so much. Um, but you know, we never actually explained why we feel this way on the podcast before. So similar to Anna's TikTok, we all thought we were all on the same page about this. (laughs) Turns out not so much. We have some explaining to do, but I guess that's why we have this platform, I suppose. I suppose. (laughs) So I think that I was thinking about this and you and I maybe take for granted some of the opinions that we have because we have been privy to and kind of take note of these conversations surrounding quote-unquote problematic, to say the least. I mean, we're going to use this word a lot throughout today's conversation, and problematic is not the best word, but it's just the word I'm using here for now, I guess, until I think of a better one. Um, So in light of our conversation about cancel culture that we had with Wooper and Nebula a few weeks back, we thought this would be good timing to kind of breach a subject and As Gianna said, it was also great timing because one of our very fabulous art history friends has also been talking about some of the same things on her TikTok, which we'll get more into. So throughout the conversation that you'll you'll hear, we get into some specifics about a few artists and particularly about Picasso. The name Picasso has taken on a type of colloquialism that refers to a kind of top tier artist and the idea of the genius artist and one it's a name that because of what we have been taught about his contributions to the western canon seems kind of untouchable and unremovable from what we know of this lineage of art history and I think one of my biggest problems is that for our culture more broadly Picasso is a problematic word that we keep using, but we don't always understand what we're saying when we say like, oh wow, like Northwest is the next Picasso, as we kind of talked about in our Could You Could Your Kid Do That episode. 
And I really hate that he's this marker of being a great artist for our population more broadly. And Picasso is a popular term in our culture. And it's one that we really need to stop using. So um, I, I hope that this conversation proves useful and this steps towards that. So Gianna, what about you? I mean, what do you think about our conversation with Anna and what are some of the takeaways or points of reference that you want to note before we get into the conversation? Yeah, um, I'm very excited about our conversation with Anna. I think it's going to prove very useful to future conversations. And I'm sure that we'll continue to bring up his name like we have um, to recontextualize it because there's so much to unpack in a statement that you just quoted like Northwest is an ex Picasso. Um, It's really disturbing. So I mean, where to begin? Would we like to start with cultural appropriation or primitivism? But at least that is terminology that is discussed when studying his works and others like him, like Gauguin, in an academic setting, Mm -hmm. Um, or at least that was my experience. Primitivism is a word that Anna brings up later in the interview, and I would like to briefly define it for you all now, because it Mm -hmm. will be, you know, essential in talking about works like Cubism. From Smart History, quote, Primitivism in art involves the appreciation and imitation of cultural products and practices perceived to be primitive, or at an earlier stage of a supposed common scale of human development. This definition contains a basis of contradiction. The primitive is admired and even seen as a model, but it is also presumed to be inferior because it is not fully developed. The paradox makes primitivism a concept that is both intellectually and morally complex. Mm -hmm. So primitivism is wrapped up with the enlightenment from the 18th century where there's this focus on Western science and that some populations need to be civilized. And then the concept is really implemented in the 19th century through art. What wasn't talked about in the classroom, however, in my experience, and why I feel so uncomfortable is that when I consume his work with, in particular, female models, I have to brace myself for the reality that more often than not, for my own consumption and entertainment, that I am looking at a portrait or an image of a female that might not have been consensual or there was an abuse of power happening. I think talking about this also lends itself well to the implementation of rape culture within popular forms of media and how Those are highly consumed forms of entertainment. And it baffles me sometimes that these are not viewed as one and the same. Another reason why we want to talk about this is because, as we will speak about, a common question is, how do you hold a dead person accountable? Mm -hmm. And you really don't directly. But Mm -hmm. what we can do is hold institutions, platforms, historians, accountable for teaching and acknowledging the full history of this artist in order to gain a greater understanding of his impact on people through his art and his place in art history. Yeah, definitely. I do want to let you guys know that throughout our conversation with Anna, she does give a few trigger warnings before she answers some of our questions. So just be prepared for that. Um, It's not throughout the whole conversation, but she lets us know specifically um, in those cases whenever she uh, brings up certain instances with artists such as Picasso. And I also just wanted to make the point to say that 
you know, Gianna and I are not beholders of what is right. And this conversation about cancel culture and how to fundamentally rework our popular art historical systems is not the only way that we can or should be doing that. This is an extremely complex world of deeply rooted tradition. And it's going to take a lot of these conversations and a lot of perspectives to kind of dismantle this huge problem within the art world that in itself permeates our popular world and popular culture. So I know this conversation is taking place in a lot of different areas throughout our world today, but it's happening in the arts as well. And and we see and we have seen with other conversations that it's not just a niche conversation for one group of people. All of these kind of permeate the exterior of their, their realm. So um, I just want to make sure that nonetheless, we are all starting to be kind of conscientious about this. And this may not be the right way and you may have other opinions on this which we would absolutely love to hear so please you know give us your feedback and let us know what you're thinking and and if you want to share any thoughts um you know we have a facebook group you can always email us um but we just we want to keep this up and and really start talking about this and again we don't know that this is the correct or the best way to go about this and there's more research that needs to be done but it's a it's a step that we're taking nonetheless that we should all be taking so yeah absolutely and as Anna points out in the interview as well this is not an opportunity to shame anyone for having an affinity or a relationship with a Picasso work of art there are some paintings of his and the majority of his work like we have to learn about it we need to know about it it is extremely important and um so Anna definitely makes a good statement about that. So just bringing that into Mm -hmm. the conversation. Um, But you might be asking yourself, who is Anna Blake? So we first met Anna at our APT happy hour. So if you were at that social, um, if you were present, you have had a chance to meet her. But Anna is not only our new best friend, she (laughs) is more importantly an independent arts writer and content creator living and working in Louisville, Kentucky. She is interested in art history and visual culture, and Anna focuses on her work and criticism that challenges the art historical canon. Yes, I'm so excited for this conversation for you all to meet Anna. Um, This interview with her is also available on our YouTube channel, so if you want to watch us, you can. And in the video, Gianna has also placed within it all of the TikToks that Anna has made that we referenced throughout the interview as well. So if you want to watch... watch it on YouTube, definitely feel free to do that. And we'll also link Anna's TikToks for you in our show notes on our resources page so you can check that out there as well. All right, everyone, here is our conversation with Anna Blake. Welcome back. We are so, so excited to have our special guest with us today. We were just talking about some very fascinating tea right before we started recording. So we are so excited to have her here. You may recognize her if you were at our APT happy hour. She joined us then. So thank you, Anna Blake, so much for joining us today. We're just so glad that you're here. 
Hi, thank you so much for having me. So we actually kind of met because we started interacting on TikTok. So you're one of our new internet art history friends, which is so exciting to meet people who think about the same things that we do on the internet. The internet is good for something. (laughs) And your TikTok, you have such good art history conversations on the app and I just love your TikTok. I'm obsessed with it. So a lot of what we are going to get into today stems from conversations that you're having and sharing with people on the app. So can you start by kind of walking us through the goal of your platform and why you feel that these conversations are important to bring to people's attention? Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. So thank you for having me. Um, It is kind of insane how how like wonderful and close like this art history community on TikTok is. I did not expect that at all when I joined (laughs) the app. Um, So that's incredible. But um, yeah, regarding my platform, um, when I talk to people about what I do for a living, um, I am an independent arts writer. Um, That's kind of what I was before the pandemic and all through the pandemic. Um, I'm an independent arts writer. And so when I tell them that, you know, there's like a variety of reactions, um, but more often than not, people say that they're not smart enough to understand art, um, which makes me really sad. Um, and I, so I wanted to build a space where there wasn't any intimidation. There wasn't, um, and the, you know, it, it, it demystifies art appreciation because I think a lot of people who maybe are just not familiar. I mean, even I will get nervous still going into museum. Oh yeah. And like feeling like eyes are on me and like, maybe I'm not like walking through the space the right way or something like that. Like, like there's so much anxiety around it. So I want to demystify it. Um, I want people to know they're capable of understanding art at a high level because I never thought that I could. Um, but it's absolutely possible. It's easier than than you think. Anyway, so I feel like having an understanding, um, but more importantly, feeling like your understanding of art is valid is extremely important and makes an art encounter so much more enriching. Um, so that's why I started my account. Yeah, that's amazing. And to your point about just you as an art historian and someone who's so involved in the art world, like even you having anxiety going into a museum. I feel that too. I feel like sometimes I'm like worried that I'm not like lingering enough at a piece or that I'm not reading enough of the information that's available or if I'm not like taking into account like everything that the, you know, curatorial process has presented me with. And then, you know, if people ask you questions because they think you are like this expert and you don't know, it's very awkward. It's just, it makes you feel so uncomfortable even for people who are supposed to like be part of this realm. Yeah, and like, I like to take a picture of the work and then take a picture of the label for later. And then I get self-conscious because I think people are judging me. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a weird thing. Um, But that's amazing. The demystification of the arts is just, it's so important and- it's just, it's so part of what Gianna and I um, are interested in. So we've started to have more productive conversations on the podcast about cancel culture. We are kind of talking about this with our um, interview with Nebula and Whooper. So how does this translate to the visual arts? You made a TikTok about things never to say to an art historian. One being we need to quote, separate the art from the artist. And 
we've kind of talked about this in different moments on the podcast, but this concept is really going to help guide our conversation for today. Um, you know, before we get into kind of specific artists like Picasso, for example. So will you share your thoughts on equally accounting for the history and the actions of artists as well as their physical work and why that's important to the art historical canon? Yeah. Um, so a lot like a staggering amount of male artists throughout history abused and objectified their quote-unquote muses Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the times these were women who were artists themselves who maybe didn't feel like it was okay for them to say no to these men. Um, Picasso is the most famous example of this and we'll get more into it later. Mm -hmm. Um, Paul Gauguin is another well-known example Um, Both of these men inflicted real irreversible harm and trauma on women and young girls who sat for them. Um, And that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface on cultural appropriation and racism in art history. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think people understand how much damage these artists really did. We say, oh, Picasso was a misogynist. Well, I mean, so is like every other man in the world. So I So like, so it it isn't really, um, I don't think, I don't think that people understand just the depth of how far Mm -hmm. um, that damage goes. I would like to go deeper um, to kind of fully more understand um, kind of just what I've, what I've heard and read about, like anecdotally, Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of it's just like anecdotes of like, yeah. You know, um, I would like to go deeper, but um, what I have found is like pretty upsetting. And so a lot of the time you have to just say, I don't want to read about this anymore. I know enough. I know enough to know that this this is not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the information's out there if you're interested. It's not hard to find, um, but there is like, if you are sensitive to um, descriptions of sexual abuse or intimate partner violence, um, I do not recommend looking that up on your own. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't expect every artist ever to be a saint. No one does. Um, It's not realistic. But when an artist's abuse of power is directly manifested in their work in the way that it is famously with Picasso or Gauguin, uh, the separating the art from the artist argument, it just starts to fall through because you're you're looking at a woman who was coerced or did not consent to be there, especially in Gauguin's case when we start to argue about whether or not we should ignore an artist's wrongdoings because they were talented or a genius or whatever, it continues to perpetuate this idea that you can be untouchable or you can act without punishment as long as you're good at what you do. And that's why people today like Donald Trump and Harvey Weinstein and any other number of men are able to get away with what they, what they have. I mean, Harvey Weinstein is starting to get some, is you know Mm -hmm. those women are starting to get justice but um for a long time he was untouchable Mm -hmm. and that's why people like brock turner when he raped someone got a lighter Mm -hmm. sentence because he was a good swimmer so Mm -hmm. you just it's just not it's it's irresponsible to make that argument Mm -hmm. i that i think that's a really good sorry i think that's a really good analogy the brock turner because it puts it puts something contemporary in perspective that you can't justify his potential career as a swimmer 
with like the, you can't conflate the two circumstances. And I think that's a really great contemporary example to point to for people who are confused about this argument. Just a little bit of a follow-up, Gianna, if that's okay to interrupt you. Do you think it's ever possible to separate the art from the artist? I like Gauguin and Picasso, I don't want to call them extreme examples because I, I don't know, like they're on that kind of like Weinstein Trump level. But do you think there are some artists who have just made mistakes? I mean, like you said, we're human, we're all human and we make mistakes. Do you think it's possible in other cases for that argument to be presented or would you like to kind of reframe and restructure this phrase of separation? No, I think it's certainly possible. I think, right. Um, there's, it's absolutely, there's a gray area. It's nuanced. There are absolutely artists and, and right now like any examples i can't think of but but i know that but i know that if we think about it there are absolutely artists who have made mistakes um and i think that i think it's probably easier today for us to forgive an art like a contemporary artist because they are with us and they may make a mistake and they may apologize for Mm -hmm. it yeah it's it's absolutely there are absolutely cases where uh, you know we can we can forgive an artist for what they've done Mm -hmm. um but in these extreme cases, I, it's just not possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to your point, Anna, also, I think, you know, just coming from my own conception of that artwork as well, it makes it very difficult when not only, you know, we see these problematic artists, you know, and their work being presented in this way and kind of getting away with it. But the other aspect that is really hard is how that is celebrated. And that makes you know, for example, our consumption of that artwork really uncomfortable when we feel like it, it's so, it can be so hard to talk about it and to look at it and like acknowledge it when, you know, other people are just out here celebrating it and using the term Picasso in like an endearing way. So mm-hmm. it's also, I think the other side of not just the artist, but also the ways in which we consume that and, and celebrate that as well. Um, but on, uh, as Bianca said, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the pod was because um, you are part of our art history TikTok family. And um, your one TikTok about Picasso actually went viral. And as soon as that happened, Bianca and I were like, we've got to get Anna on the pod. Um, in your video, in your TikTok, your text read, Picasso was a misogynist creep and we should not, and we should hold him accountable. Um, so you use the trend, yes, of pretending like you are holding hands with your other self and, um, the two people represent feminists and fascists and, um, they are in this consensus that Picasso is quote overrated. And there was a lot of confusion from people on the app, not understanding like where the common thread was between these two parties who typically don't see eye to eye on things. So (laughs) although we, we understand the humor and the kind of scholarly thinking at play here, I would like you to walk us through your thoughts um, and like the process of what it was like to make that video and also the reaction when that post stimulated so much debate and and conversation on this particular history um, of this figure picasso yeah um it was truly the like most niche thing that i you could ever do and all of these people saw it (laughs) um um but you know that sound was like that sound was a meme for a very long time and i was like you know scrolling through my for you page and um 
trying to think of what are other like how can I relate this to like my niche and all and you know it it, it just made sense but mm-hmm. so to explain it um it's pretty common now and we'll explain this a little bit more later but it's pretty common now for contemporary fascist movements to follow in the nazi party's footsteps claiming that modern art or like they call it like abstract art uh useless pretentious meaningless etc in the united states we got really close to having that codified when our last president tried to ban modern design from all federal buildings i think it was Oh, I can't remember what it was called. It was it was a ridiculous <clears throat> executive order. Um, it never got signed, but in the United States, white supremacist, at least here, I, I don't know about globally, but in the United States, white supremacists and the alt-right, um, because they do overlap, uh, they like to trace their heritage to classical antiquity. I don't know if um, any of y'all have ever been to the Parthenon replica in Nashville, um, but they have like a rally out there, like claiming it as their heritage. Um, you know, so for them, like classical antiquity is like peak culture, and I suppose they feel like modern art is an insult to that heritage. And if you try to make logic or reason out of it, it starts to fall apart. But that is what they think. So the TikTok was a joke about how feminists and fascists, these two groups that do not overlap at all in the slightest, may have more in common than we think. <laughs> Though for completely different reasons, um, feminists like myself take issue with Picasso's history of sexual assault and cultural appropriation, while fascists just simply cannot appreciate the work. I found it interesting that a lot of the commenters latched onto the verbiage, we should hold him accountable. Right. Um, and kind of seemed to jump to this inclu- con- conclusion immediately that I was trying to do cancel Picasso, which is a valid thing to do, but people respond very um, intensely to that. Um, So it became pretty clear quickly. A lot of people saw this and had maybe never, this this did not, this went far beyond my usual audience of people who very routinely have art encounters. Um, This went to an audience of people who had never been confronted with any true criticism of what they would consider a genius artist, which is not, it's not a criticism on them, but rather a failure on the institution, broadly institution with a capital I, um, as an authority that should be encouraging critical thinking in addition to these art encounters. Yeah, yeah. Um, Going off of that, just a follow-up question. So you were talking about all that feedback and those comments that you got on your TikTok, and I did scroll through the comments, which- Which were wild. Yeah, we're wild. Um, and it's not something I typically do. Um, but I also just wanted to acknowledge the fact that I, I think the ways in which you were communicating and responding to people was so clear and kind. And the fact that like, mm-hmm. you took the time to follow up with people about that. Um, I just like wanted to acknowledge that you handled that really lovely. Um, but it's in the comments where you do mention dismantling the idea of the genius artist. So I wanted you to just kind of go in a little bit now and elaborate on that destructive theory and and how it has let particularly famous male artists continue to be put up on this pedestal. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of like the art historical canon, um, Western art history was until very recently made up of male authorities who affirmed other men. Um, I mean, and that, and that's not surprising, um, right? Like in job interviews, people tend to hire people who remind them of themselves. That is a proven fact. Um, so it, it, it makes sense. Um, 
so the artists who achieved success or fame were artists who sold their work to wealthy patrons, lived in major metropolitan areas like Paris or New York City, um, and caught the attention of critics like Clement Greenberg and Henry Geldzeller. Geldzeller, I'm sorry. And so it was, and as I'm sure that we can all agree, still is in some ways a boys club mm-hmm. where, you know, popularity rather than merit will determine if someone gets into Jansen's history of art, which is, which will go on to teach further generations and just continue to perpetuate the canon. Um, so these genius artists then were simply men with connections and social capital. And you don't really have to dig too deep to find dozens of other artists who were making similar works at the same time as them without recognition. Um, so we treat the canon like it's a straight line where this movement comes after this movement comes after this movement. And these were the champions of that movement. But we really need to understand that the can not even the canon, because it's just forget about the canon. We need to understand that art history is a polylogue where there are hundreds of different conversations happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a straight line. It's just not. I was um, having a kind of a similar conversation with someone a few weeks ago about music. And I was, tr- I, I'm not, I often need a lot of time to kind of sit and think about something for a while before I have like the proper words to kind of articulate how my brain is feeling about it. But what you're describing, I feel is kind of like a, of a similar case just to music and the conversation that I was recently having about how like this artist did this first and this artist, you know, is repeating the work that they're doing. And I feel like it's just, it's so hard when you're taught in art history or in music, like exactly one thing comes right after the other and it's just a straight timeline. And it's completely possible for ideas to pop up sporadically and for the same kind of inspiration to come to multiple people at a different time just based on the way that our world works like we are constantly intaking and especially with contemporary art and music the same types of of images and people and conversations and it's not completely unheard of that two people will have a similar idea at the same time but because of privilege and status and location and all these kind you know race gender all of these different intersections one person gets bumped to the top and so i i i love that illustration that you're bringing to us that everything is kind of happening at the same time and it's kind of a uh unfortunate i don't want to call it luck of the draw but situation of circumstances that people get privileged opportunities to the status of genius artists. Yeah. And just like a little bit more to that, it's like a really great example of that is, and I understand, and I understand why art history would be like, this comes after the other, because that's very easy to understand. That's uh-huh. how MoMA became so popular because they really tried to create that history. But like an example of, you know, the, all of these different conversations happening at the same time, we regard Paris as kind of where modernism was born. That's where modern art started. But if you look at Giesbend, Alabama, you have very similar aesthetics happening in these quilts that were made by women who were descendants of formerly enslaved people. But because of their race, their gender, and where they lived, Mm -hmm. they didn't they absolutely did not get the same attention from critics mm-hmm. because they were doing what was considered a craft and not an art. They were not exactly um, validated at all, even you know, by the art world. So it, it's just so important to remember that, that there's so many different conversations happening at the same time. 
Yeah, There's Gianna, so much you that we don't we don't know like as well. I think about just like all the different like other movements and like groups that have like taken place that like I mm-hmm. like we just don't know about. Um, what were you gonna say, Bianca? Um, I was just gonna say that Gianna, you also worked on the McVicker show, if I'm thinking correctly, yeah. and um, at a at our previous art museum, there was this show where we were kind of thinking about um, centering the Midwest and how, like you pointed out, just circumstance of location, New York being this quote unquote hub for the art worlds kind of doesn't lend opportunity to people who are working in the central US. And so Gianna just- you worked on that show with um yeah um with uh Louise Siddons who mm-hmm. was the curator for that exhibition and wrote an entire book about McVicker who was an OSU professor uh but that exhibition was just really critical and we also showcased other works of contemporary art but the fact that people didn't think modernism and modern art didn't exist in you know the middle of the country and mm-hmm. in the midwest um which it absolutely did and that's why we do get you know these stereotypes about rural areas especially in the area that we're at so mm-hmm. So the TikTok that we were talking about had about 13,000 views last time I checked. I don't know if it's, if it's gone up with, again, like Gianna said, a lot of the conversation taking place in the comments and you ended up posting two follow-up videos explaining the irony behind your video and also the irony and controversy that occurred because surely, you know, we thought we would all be on the same page about this. (laughs) And in one of your recent videos, you replied to a comment Um, and made sure to note that you understood how this humor can be pretty jarring. Um, But the most ironic thing is that the follow-up post only had about 400 views as opposed to 13,000. So the TikTok algorithm uh, can be pretty frustrating and still doesn't make any sense. But I wanted to talk about the Pivotal Art Exhibition in which this topic and humor was centered upon, the Degenerate Art Exhibition um, as called by the Nazi Party. Yeah, I don't understand the algorithm either, but um, yeah, so I am a very petty person. I mean, <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories from our history. It's my favorite story to tell at parties, <laughs> which I guess <laughs> makes me pretty fun. I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, truly, this is like what drew me towards modern art when I was in grad school. Um so um spark knows in the 1930s the <laughs> nazi party i should not be laughing in the 1930s the nazi party collected modern art um who's at the time contemporary um and they called it degenerate art um they put on an exhibition claiming that the art lacked technical skill um insulted the german feeling which is like whatever that means that was like probably like an anti-semitic dog whistle um, it wasn't just work made by Jewish artists that they included, um, but many of it was. Um, they also included artists who were not, who did not live in Germany, like Picasso, and like Kandinsky. Um, so what they didn't like was that modern art is probably, or, or like they thought that modern art was a bit deeper than um, representational art. It's more than what meets the eye. A lot of modern artists were um disillusioned after world war one that's you know that's how we got data um and so this european avant-garde was creating work that was making people think probably a bit more than representational art was at the time obviously that's not a blanket statement obviously representational art can be very deep but that's that that is the gist of what they felt 
Um, so they put on the show with slogans that emphasized how bad the artwork was. You can look up pictures. Um, LACMA did a forensic reproduction um, a few years ago. So there are plenty of photographs of what this would have looked like. Um, it was essentially, this is what bad art looks like. Don't do this. Um, but it had this blockbuster list of artists that had Kandinsky, Mark Chagall, Otto Dix, Picasso, like so many great, I use the word, but so many modern artists. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Very famous and popular mm -hmm. modern artists. Um, and so for a lot of the people living in Munich where this was, um, it did tour, but when it was initially exhibited, it was in Munich. This was their first and possibly only chance to see all of these artists all together at one time. And so to this day, it is the single most attended art exhibition. It averaged about 20,000 visitors a day. Um, and hilariously, they had a, another show at the same time concurrently, just like a very close by called the Great German Art Show. And it was a flop. It was horrible. It was all genre art. Hitler apparently hated it. So, you know, it's, it's this great example of a massive failure in fascist propaganda. Mm -hmm. And oh. it is a, um, it illustrates why, why fascist movements today don't like modern art either. Mm. Wow. I think that's also just in, in general, it's an interesting example to give when, when presenting the idea of abstraction, like what that means to like a new learner, because we still, you know, I think abstract art has that, um, you know, mysticism to it. Like why I can do that? Like, what does this mean? I don't understand. Um, but that's just, you know, why people are so scared of abstract art and why fascism was so scared about abstract art was because of that implementation of emotion and reaction and, and ethos to a work of art that you're not going to get with like a landscape but it's funny that the other one flopped yeah well and what's interesting is that when that show like did open people in the united states there was a critic in the united states that said yeah you know what i could probably agree with hitler on some of this like because a lot of people really did not like modernism when mm. it first started you know people thought abstract expressionism especially but that's that's like 20 years down the line mm. but you know they hated it they hated it when it came out mm. so it's kind of interesting. It's it's definitely not the same. And I don't want to give the appearance that I'm merging the two, but it's interesting just thinking about um, exhibitions of the refused or thinking about the Salon de Refuse that took place in the Impressionist era and thinking about how that show was actually, you know, more popular than the original Salon. So thinking about this idea of something being refused and the idea of kind of general popularity, how that in turn informs art history and how we think about art history as well. Just what is popular, what people show up to and what people like that in itself also perpetuates a stereotype about what art gets populated and the value of it and so on and so forth. So we actually get a lot of questions about Picasso specifically and we get a lot of inquiries about why we kind of joke about hating him and others like him on the podcast. Um, so can you talk about Picasso specifically? And I know you've talked about this on your TikTok as well, but really elaborate um, for our listeners some more on like what he did that was so terrible. Because I, I think that that is so disassociated from our 
education on the artist and why we use him in kind of our regular terminology. And again, you've talked about the problem of kind of separating him from his work, but is there anything that you would want to say to people who genuinely like his work and see some of his work? I mean, I'm thinking about like Guernica, you know, like how do you, how do you have that conversation with people who really feel like one of his pieces or something like that does influence them and they, they do want to like it, but they're struggling with, with what they think about this piece with who he is. Yeah. I mean, there are Picasso pieces that I like as well. I think that his little smiley faces are very cute. Um, but I, I think that. I think that when you look at a piece, you have to, when you look at specifically a piece by him, you have to understand, you have to know what damage was done to create that piece. So um, content warning, sexual assault, intimate partner violence, pedophilia is going to all be after this now. So he had, he had a thing for women who were far younger than him. Um, and he used his lovers, um, whether they were wives or mistresses as his models and muses. Olga Kaklova, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing these names right, but Olga Kaklova, Fernando Olivier, Marie-Therese Walter, Francois Aguilot, and Dora Mar um, were their names. Um, Walter was, I think, the youngest when he got involved with her. She was 17. Um, his granddaughter, Marina, wrote in her memoir that quote, he submitted them to his animal sexuality, tamed them, bewitched them, ingested them, and crushed them onto his canvas. After he had spent many nights extracting their essence, once they were bled dry, he would dispose of them. So that's a very, that's very alarming. And his mm -hmm. granddaughter wrote that. Um, he is known to have physically abused the women in his life. He obviously had a lot of power over these women as a man, as an older man, and because many of them were artists themselves, as a more established person in his career, being on his bad side would have affected these women's careers. He did threaten, I believe it was Francois Guillot, he did threaten, like, if you leave me, you will never work in this town again. That is a paraphrase. And I um, might have to fact check that, but I think that's, I think that's her, that's the person. But um, so... He abused, he knew that he had power over these people and he abused it. Um, he abused them sexually, he abused them mentally and he abused them physically. Um, I think the most troubling account um, that no one really talks about, this is really only um, cited in one biography of his, but in 1907, him and his wife, um, Fernand, uh, they adopted a 13 year old girl named Raymond um, within the same year. Um, Fernand found explicit drawings that Picasso had done of Raymond nude, a 13-year-old child. Rather than hold Picasso accountable, they sent Raymond back to the orphanage. Absolutely no one talks about this. I see timelines all the time of Picasso and they mention he adopted, in 1907, he adopted a girl named Raymond and then they never speak about it again. It's possible that those drawings were studies for Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, but we don't know for sure. To anyone who is, you know, a big Picasso fan, I don't, I'm not trying to shame, like you should, I don't want you to feel ashamed because really Western, Western society has, has trained you to, you know, be a Picasso fan, if, if that's maybe the correct verbiage. I would just encourage you to look at these, look at these and 
realized that a lot of his a lot of the people that he drew a lot of his models were deeply damaged by mm-hmm. what he did to them I, I think at least one of them committed suicide and maybe that wasn't directly because of what he did to them but um, I'm sure that the trauma that he inflicted on them probably contributed mm-hmm. so it's just something it's just a context that you just have to know kind of moving forward um with context is key and when it comes to something like cancel culture um I wanted to ask like what was one of the last things that you really wanted to like help people understand when it comes to that idea of cancel culture within art and like separating the art from the artists how would you help people to move forward with these ideas and what do you want to ask them you know when they talk about art and visit these art spaces because like you said we don't want people to feel shame for not understanding information that also wasn't accessible in the art place but how can we especially help have these difficult conversations within a physical you know art space itself Um, So I think first there needs to be an understanding of the difference between canceling and holding someone accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, Canceling is a very valid way of exerting personal power over a problematic figure by refusing to consume their content or interact with them any further. It's a radical form of resistance that started among Black Americans during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, But unfortunately today, canceling doesn't do enough to hold people responsible. Um, Like Louis C.K., he's still working. He's still rich. He's still doing sold out shows. Well, probably not in the past year, but you know, Louis C.K. was supposedly canceled, but he's still working. So that is where accountability comes in. And in terms of art history, the question becomes, and the question that I got a lot on that TikTok, how do you hold a dead person accountable? And that responsibility lies in the institution with a capital I, the museum specifically. Um, The curator in this instance is someone who has a lot of responsibility and needs to claim that responsibility. They can choose to hang an exhibition on say Paul Gauguin and only use it to advance the narrative of primitivism, which is problematic on its own, Mm -hmm. um, the Pont Aven school or the genius artist myth. Um, or they can hang the show and contextualize the work. Who were the women that he painted? How old were they? What was his relationship with them? Why was he so drawn to them? And when we answer those questions, we the answers are troubling, but they're extremely important. And that will that helps us contextualize and understand the work. That doesn't mean that we can't appreciate it, but we have to know we have to know what was happening behind the scenes. Um, so, so an example for moving forward, um, I want to present an example from, um, Speed Art Museum, which is the largest art museum where I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, in 1972, the museum purchased a John Cassare painting. I I hope I got that name right. Um, it's called Light Purple Panties Zippered Slip from 1971. Um, you can look it up. It's it's confrontational. Um, it's it, and when they per- the museum purchased it, it was purchased with the intention to be provocative, um, revolutionary piece to be in a museum and collection because it was very outwardly sexual. Um, the piece is now understood as a problematic manifestation of the male gaze, in addition to 
being a bit unsubstantial and shallow. Um, but it is still an outstanding part of the museum's collection. It's one of the Speed's most recognizable pieces. They sold magnets and posters of it for a very long time. A few years ago, Miranda Lash, um, who is no longer, she's at MCA Denver now, but um, when she was at the Speed, she, uh, as the contemporary curator, she chose to recontextualize this piece. And she did some research and she found that the model, um, Eleanor Brown and Coke, was the daughter of Van Deren Koch, who was a photographer in Kentucky and a friend of Casares. And when the painting was made, she was two years out of college. So she was a consenting adult, but there, there's some more context because when Van Deren Koch died in 2004, Eleanor sued his estate over nude photos that he had taken of her as a young girl. So now there's a chance that she may have been exploited or coerced into modeling for John Cassare, her father's friend. Um, so in other words, she may have been groomed from a young age and her modeling for that painting was not consensual. The, so Lash chose to recontextualize this piece with a new wall label that detailed the entire story of Eleanor Brown and Coke, her father and Cassare's misogyny and his gaze. So what if we presented Picasso in the same way that Lash had chose to present this painting, Light Purple Panties? Rather, why, what if we just took a moment and critiqued, say, Le Demoiselle d'Avignon, rather mm -hmm. than celebrate it? What if we stopped calling him a genius and instead acknowledged that there was other work being done around him at the same time, including work by women, including work by Black, Indigenous, and Brown people, um, that simply did not get the same recognition because they did not have the same privilege as he did. Um, what if we looked at the work that was being done by the women who were his models? Because a lot of them were artists too. Um, so it's really, it's, it's really that simple of just recontextualizing, letting the viewer come to their own conclusion. Um, that is really the first step. And I think that is where at, at like a broad change to an understanding of the canon will happen. It's really that simple because again, the canon is not a monologue. There are stories waiting to be told that no one has looked into. You know, it's interesting when you bring up like, um, um, like, you know, we've been talking spaces about like the MoMA today and like how they have uh, Mademoiselle's Day Avignon like on display there. And you think about how I've had some like pretty traumatic stories from like the MoMA and just the way I've like witnessed people like interact art there. Um, but you know, that painting is just like grouped around and like taken a million photos mm -hmm. of just as something, you know, like Starry Night is there or what have you. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really great point about it falling back on the institution and the, you know, what we always talk about, um, you know, holding the institution accountable. Um, and I, I also don't think like cancel culture in general is something that's brought up within, um, the work in museums as much as like we stimulate conversations about cancel cultures for the institution itself but those conversations um i have not experienced them take place in museum settings by the museum so much um i also just want to add to your point about again that lineage i think whenever gian and i kind of have conversations with people about this they say oh he did so much for but what but cubism you know to quote our favorite comedian um you know they are so set on like they've been told repetitively that he built 
cubism, you know, Brock maybe kind of entered his way in there. But I just, I just want our listeners to know that just as Anna said, for yourself, go look at the people who were making art at the same time as him, you know, go look at the lesser known artists and do research about people who are having the same thoughts about cubist tendencies at the same time as him. Picasso did not build cubism. We have been told that he did. Um, and I also just wanted to quickly point out that um, Francois Gillot was also an artist and she has a book and I was trying to look up the title of the book. I, th I think it's called My Life with Picasso. Um, I have yet to read it. It is on my wish list. Forgive me for bringing it up without having read it. But um, if you're interested further, I mean, look at his wives. Francois Gillot was an amazing artist and I just want to give her her credit as well. Um, Anna, thank you so much for being here today. We are so excited to have you. Um, is there anything that you want to share or plug before you go? Where can our listeners find you? Uh, obviously, we will link your TikTok because you guys have to go follow Anna's TikTok. It's truly where it's at. <laughs> Um, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I can't believe people watch my TikTok. I thought like five people were gonna see that. When I when I started this account, I was like, if five people watch my videos, I'll be happy. Um, so I I am uh, I'm very flattered. Um, my TikTok is still very much an ugly baby. Um, I do. <laughs> yeah, I I just I I I know what my voice is, but I haven't maybe. Um, articulated it yet um so i do really enjoy having that platform um right now it's a it's a way for me to explore visual art in a casual way so if you if if that's how you like to learn um please follow me it's at but is it art and there's so it's like but underscore is underscore it underscore art um uh, i post our history lessons um spicy takes um absurd memes so um, I took a little bit of a break, but I'm picking up my book club again. So um, oh. we're reading the subversive stitch right now. Um, so if you are interested in art history, if you are just reading in general, if you just like to learn things through books, um, we I post um, a chapter a week, we talk about it. Um, we have conversations in the comments, you're welcome to stitch duet, whatever you think and join that discussion. Um, with the pandemic getting under control and pending my second dose of the vaccine, um, I will also be doing studio visits with artists soon. Um, so oh. if you are interested in especially the Louisville art scene, which is very cool, um, that, that is where I'll be documenting that. Um, some of the videos that we have mentioned in this episode, I have privated just because the comments have gone out of control. Mm. Um, so if you are trying to find those videos, you might not find them right away, just FYI. Um, but I, I'll put them, I'll make them public again once like the dust settles. Um, other than that, I'm a contributor for Ruckus, which is Louisville's independent arts journal. Um, we are moving into the South and Midwest this year as well. Oh. So we'll be visiting other cities. Um, if you live in the greater Louisville area, it's worth it to stay up to date with the art scene. Even if you don't live in Louisville, check it out because Kentucky is really cool. Um, ruckusjournal.org is the website um, and it's free. Or uh, if you want to support, you can also join their Patreon. Um, Cool. Yeah. We'll link all of that for you guys in our show notes. It'll be on our resources page. 
Anna, thank you so, so much for joining us. We can't wait to have you back. It was just, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for like enlightening all of us today. Oh my God. I thank you so much for having me. I look forward to coming back. <laughs> absolutely. You. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Okay. And with that, we'll talk to you guys on Tuesday. Bye everyone. <laughs> Art Pop Talks production assistant is Audrey Kaminsky. Music and sounds by Josh Turner. Photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.